guys, and welcome to episode four of Talking to Trailblazers with Business News Australia. My name's Jack Corbett, and I'm going to be your host today. I've got the pleasure of sharing a few minutes with somebody who, from the first day I ever met him, truly inspired me with his passion for life and business. James Gregg is somebody who has spent the last couple of decades innovating and creating platforms and software within the technology space that are improving the way that businesses are able to manage their own processes and systems. Uh, James, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, good, good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for, for putting some time aside. These are very unique times, my friend. It is. Look, it's definitely not something we could have ever planned for, um, but we're getting through it and uh, um, hopefully not too much longer we'll be out the other side. I agree with that. And the old saying is that under pressure, we create diamonds, you know, and through adversity, we find strength. So no, nobody could have predicted what the last three months have held for us all in, um, in life and in business. But if you were to quickly reflect on your greatest learning, what's the biggest takeaway from you or something that you've identified um, in these last three months with the circumstances that have been thrust upon you? Um, look, you're, you're right. There's, there's, you know, in, in a situation like this, sometimes people can feel powerless and out of control. Um, but the opportunity is, there's always opportunity out there. I mean, in our particular case, we were, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the founders of a company called Ivy, which, um, is software for the hospitality sector. And of course, hospitality has been hit very hard and, um, the COVID times. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we thought that it was, you know, going to, you know, be a very sizable, I guess, change to our business. Mm-hmm. Um, in saying that, I've also got some other businesses where, you know, same sort of thing. We thought that, you know, it would make a big change to our difference. Uh, one of them being a distillery that we uh, we just launched on the, um, the eve of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that one was quite interesting because we were able to spot the opportunity of being able to make sanitizer and, you know, generate quite a bit of revenue to actually get the distillery started properly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So in the, in the midst of about to launch a business that's a, a gin distillery, um, uh, fundamentally an alcohol business, we get thrust into a position whereby you can quickly pivot, use the same um, infrastructure to produce an alcohol-based product, but instead one that was so highly in demand during the pandemic, which was, was hand sanitizer. Yeah, exactly. No, it was it was perfect. So yeah. we were able to, you know, with the um, the hospitality industry, you know, really shutting down. It meant that we had a lot of um, you know, team members with not a lot to do. So we were able to move some of them across to help in that space, um, which was fantastic. We were able to help out the community, and then from the perspective of the distillery, it was it was just brilliant because we um, we were able to generate revenue to really get our distillery started, and because we had such incredible support, I think we had in the order of about. About, uh, you know, I'm probably guessing now about three and a half thousand orders in the space of about three weeks. Uh, that um, became a very, um, uh, you know, very good database for us to get started with our gin business. And, uh, and we did, we used that and we've almost sold out of our first uh, batch of gin, which is very exciting. Congratulations, mate. That's, that's amazing. So when you made this decision, was it organizations were contacting you asking whether you would pivot your business to the production of hand sanitizer or you sat back and said, Hey, I can clearly see there is a demand here. Why don't I change my short term supply to create cash flow for the bigger picture of wildflower as a business? Look, it was, it was a bit of both. Um, in the early days of COVID, there was a lot of fear and 
uncertainty and and I saw very quickly the panic buying taking place mm-hmm. um, and I was aware of sort of how sanitizer worked and um, in the early days when I was considering whether it'd be something we could jump on um, we got two calls um, saying hey are you making sanitizer and and that was sort of the the shining light that said yep we need to and it was it was an interesting set of circumstances because the start was we couldn't even get containers you know there was no one in Australia that had containers available because uh, of the nature of things coming out of China stopping and and the containers that were here had been purchased by others. So we found um, these these bags that we could fill effectively. Um, we, we developed labels and popped a website together in the space of about, you know, I reckon it was about eight hours. And then that night we did our first pre-sale and uh, probably took our first, you know, 800 or so orders. Wow. Yeah, it was it was incredible. We had to, we were watching you know Google Analytics on the TV in the distillery, seeing it sort of light up all over Australia as we had everyone jumping online for uh, you know trying to get their hands on it. It was quite exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you look, I mean, one thing I've loved about you, James, I met you three and a half years ago for the first time, and I think one thing that really stood out to me was that you share. Uh, an ethical and moral standpoint that is very similar to mine. Yes, we are all in business to make money. That is a given. Pro- profit is essential you know, to, to most successful commercial businesses. But ultimately, profit was created by offering the highest quality outcome to the end user, ultimately being the customer. Mm-hmm. Now, I appreciate supply and demand. When demand is, is excessive for a product that is very limited in its supply, naturally price can rise accordingly. But how did you feel watching online, you know, the toilet roll and, and the hand sanitizer that was being sold at maybe eight, 10, 12 times multiplier on its general retail value? Do you think that that's just the nature of the beast? Or do you think, unfortunately, there will always be people that will hawk on a challenging situation? No, look, I, there, there will always be people to take advantage of what's going on. I, I personally don't believe in that. Um, you know, my personal view on all these sort of things is, is, you know, we're sort of in it together and we need to help each other. You know, our pricing was one of the lowest. Um, we gave away a significant amount to nurses. Um, you know, we, we became aware early on that with some of the um, the nurses here, particularly on the Gold Coast, um, under their uh, union that they were part of, that they couldn't get hand sanitizer as part of their working conditions. So we uh, donated it to them to really make it available and help them. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. My wife is a nurse at the local Gold Coast Hospital in the emergency department. And you're exactly right. Under the QNU, the Queensland Nurses Union, um, she was unfortunately unable to access the hand sanitizer. So fortunately, she had a friend that worked in Coles and was able to purchase before they had reached the shelves. Um, which mm. was able to, to help out. But yeah, I think those times of uncertainty that are really deeply encompassed in, a, in an ultimate fear um, something that is a necessity, it, it does start to become uh, very disappointing when people are using that situation to their advantage, um, as opposed to being community orientated and going, no, we're actually all in this together. I can still make a 30 to 40% margin on this sanitizer selling at a general retail price. Why do I need to extort people? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things um, that I um, am quite 
proud of is, is I'm an immigrant to Australia and I've, I've been lucky enough, I guess, to have experienced other places in the world. And I think Australia definitely has one of the best balances in terms of that. You know, um, you know, we have a little bit of socialism here where we do as a community care about other people. You know, you, you can go to hospital and your child can get fixed without having to remortgage your house. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in other parts of the world, you can't. And I like that. I like that, you know, we as a society can care about other people. I mean, you're always going to get individuals that act away from that, but, but we are very lucky here in Australia. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it being uh, growing up on in social housing, and, and my mother is, uh, you know, a far left socialist. Um, it is in this country that that healthy balance between the fact myself as a um, you know, the owner of corporate entities, naturally, we are profit focused. And whether we like to announce ourselves as true capitalists or not, the reality is that there's there's components of that that will flow through most business environments here in Australia. But when the going gets tough, whether that's bushfires, whether it's droughts, whether it's pandemics, definitely there, are, there have been times over the last six months being an immigrant just like you james coming obviously yourself from south africa and me from the uk um i've been damn proud to be an aussie this 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 year um not that i wasn't before but i think when the chips are down people and uh, a country's true colors will show um, yeah and I think yeah we've come we've come out of this and we can i'm the first one to bash a poly whenever i get an opportunity but i definitely would turn around in the last five months and say i feel like we've been decisive in our action um, and I'm extremely proud of how well we've been able to come out of this somewhat unscathed. Yes, there will be economic damage, but from a, a loss of life perspective um, and a loss of livelihood perspective, um, so far we've certainly come out of this much better than most. Would you, would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned during this whole experience is that as individuals, we sometimes understand that we don't really know what we're doing in our lives. We're sort of figuring it out as we go along. Um, And politicians, and in a situation like this, they're exactly the same. You know, they didn't know what was going to happen. And it was very hard to make some, you know, really incredible decisions. Um, But we, I think we should be very thankful that they did, because I don't know if I would have necessarily made the same decisions as them. But, uh, you know, we're in a much better position than we could have been. Yeah, I agree. And go back to this idea of being being an immigrant. You know, I know that Australia is a very diverse country. Um, we are quite a transient city, especially here on the Gold Coast. So what would you say was the toughest part of getting started in the game of business in this country? So if anybody's listening to us today and they come from South America or Europe or Africa or Asia and they've come to this country and they want to get started in the game of business. What would be some of the things that you found most challenging that maybe they could have some foresight of? Look, it, it really depends on the nature of your business. I mean, uh, a, a good example on the nature of the distillery, just getting that started here in Australia is, you know, we do, particularly in Queensland, uh, like our rules. There's there's rules for almost everything. And if your business includes fun, there's a lot more rules to that as well. So, you know, we, we came up with the idea of starting a distillery in 2018 and uh, launched in 2020. And that entire time was really just dealing with red tape. So that is definitely a challenge we've got to deal with here in Australia. Um, You know, from the perspective of of some of the other businesses like the tech business, businesses that I'm in, um, funding is actually a really challenging one. You know, we're we're not a big population. um, And as a result, we don't have a lot of entities that that can fund. So we tend to have to look outside of Australia and um, that can be hard. Uh, It can be hard when we're we're trying to um, build a business, but 
you know, maybe don't have the same sort of opportunities as if we were in some of the, the bigger countries or uh, bigger sort of areas like uh, Europe or uh, the US? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you, you actually took on all areas at once, right? The first day I ever met you, I was very fortunate to be able to um, come to James's headquarters, which at the time was um, Varsity Lakes on the, on the Gold Coast. And during that period, there was a South African office, there was a, a UK office, there was an American office, there was the Australian office. And I, at the time, was running a business that only had one location. Yes, I might, you know, you, once you get to the 20, 30, 40 staff and then it starts growing thereafter, it presents its own challenges. But one thing I found is that you seem far too calm and nowhere near stressed enough for a man that was running a business in four continents. <laughs> so you either have a fantastic poker face or you have great operational systems that have allowed you to scale globally at speed. So just, just for everybody's benefit, talk me through some of the pros and cons, do's and don'ts, you know, in reflection of expanding into four continents and doing it so quickly. Um, what sort of insights or advice would you give others who are, who are considering that? Look, before I sort of answer the question in relation to, you know, how we did it, I think one of the things and probably the most important thing I've learned over the years, over my 18 or 19 odd years as a, as a business owner, mm-hmm. is that owning a business is hard. There is, there's no two ways about it. It's, it's, it's a really challenging thing. You've got so many different things you're dealing with. You're dealing with how we're going to pay our staff, you know, staff that are leaving, challenges with the product, you know, customers that are or aren't happy. It's, it's a constant battle dealing with the stresses of, you know, the various pulling forces uh, in relation to a business. And um, I, I think what I've done is I've, I've learned the skill of, over time of just rolling with the punches, you know, just understanding that that's just part of it. You know, uh, I, I remember early on when, you know, something as simple as an employee saying, you know, someone that, that you thought would be with you for a long time saying that they've, they're going to leave you and, and how much that affected me because, of you know all the things that I felt like I'd, I'd put into them and, and done for them. Um, however, over time, I think I've just I've just learned that that's the nature of it, and and it's 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 never going to be easy. You know, from the perspective of of Ivy and and how we've been able to grow, it's it's been a real challenge. You know, we've we're um, uh, more than we've been around now for more than ten years, and a good. Uh, the, the, probably the, the initial six was just figuring out exactly what our business model was and how we were going to do it. Um, so the, the, the background to that is that we developed event registration technology for event organizers. And uh, the, the nature of that software is we're helping event organizers build event websites and taking registrations for their events. And, and early on, a lot of the event organizers were saying to us, look, we need your help, you know, engaging with our suppliers. You know, one of the big problems that we have is, you know, if we contact a venue to find out if they have availability to go through the process of making a booking, it can take days, if not weeks. And um, that for us was really the eye opener to say, well, this process doesn't make sense. So early on, we thought, okay, well, how do we fix this? And we said, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll connect with the existing systems that are out there because surely hotels and restaurants and venues have software for managing their bookings. Mm -hmm. And what we found out was uh, that in most cases, they either didn't, they were using Excel spreadsheets and Outlook, or the software that they were using was very expensive and you just couldn't connect to it. So about six years ago, we, we made the decision to... 
um, develop our own software in that space, software to help venues manage the sales processes that they have, but uh, also allow it to connect to the customers that want to engage with them to be able to check their availability and, and even make an instant booking. Um, and we found that that idea has is really, it's, it's like a snowball. It's been rolling down the hill and picking up more snow as it's going. And it's almost been dragging us as a result um, because of it. You know, we've... Um, We've, as a result, you know, been scaling because we're we're starting to get these inquiries from all over the world, um, where I, I guess our our customers are wanting us to be there, and and that's definitely helped. Uh, in saying that, however, it's it's been challenging. We initially, when we um, we launched in the US, uh, we had a false start. We we hired a team of people that we believe would be perfect, and because they were not with us, you know, they 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 didn't tell us the nature of what they were doing, and. For six months, we didn't make a single uh, sale other than, you know, those inbound inquiries that we were getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had to re- rejig everything, you know, hire a new team. And, you know, that was a good 18 months of, of a, a mistake that, you know, cost us quite significantly. Mm-hmm. So it, it was very challenging. And, and a lot of that has to do with, with trying to figure out how to get these things to work. You know, here in Australia, we are right in the middle of all the time zones. So for me, that means I'm up at 6 a.m. on calls. Um, to the US, um, and then we're, uh, you know, going to bed at uh, seven or eight as we're trying to finish up the UK, who are just starting their day. So it can be really full on, and um, and unfortunately, that's the nature of of growing into multiple regions at once. Um, and and it is hard and tough, and um, we're only just getting to the point now where we're sort of progressing, I guess beyond that where we're able to have uh, a significant presence in each of the regions where we're not having to wake up and, and do those, you know, 15 hour days every day. Um, we've got team members that can start, you know, shouldering some of that, that burden and, and helping us grow in those regions. Um, and we're getting there now, you know, we've, we've got some incredible customers in each of the spaces in the UK, you know, our customers include venues like Twickenham stadium, London stadium, uh, Goodwood where, you know, they, they hold all the motor races every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then over in, um, the US, we've got incredible venues um, like Treasure Island in, in Vegas um, or all of the Red Roof properties, which of which there's about 600 of them. So, um, you know, it's it's exciting to see, you know, all of the hard work over the last 11 years uh, starting to, to pay off. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's amazing. And if you were to look back in hindsight then, naturally, you know, we never do things perfectly and we, there's always opportunities to be able to do them better. But if you were going to highlight maybe the one or two areas that going through a global expansion, like if, if, if an example, let's go back to Wildflower at the moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but Wildflower is an Australian distributed gin at present. Mm-hmm. Correct. If you were to go on and distribute that gin globally, what would you do differently to how you expanded Ivy globally? So I think um, the the number one thing I would suggest early on is you take time finding the right people. And, and the secret to finding the right people is people from the industry that just get it. You're not trying to train them how to do the thing that you're you're out there for someone that, that lives and breathes it. So you take your time doing that. And if someone is not right, you get rid of them quickly. Um, I think that's always hard because sometimes, you know, we've, we've got this belief that if we've invested a little bit, we keep investing more and more, you know, in this, this kind of like when you're in a casino, you, you put $10 in and because you're already $10 in, you might as well put another $2 in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's, it's much better to, to, if you figure out that you've got the wrong team, that you cut your losses early and you find the people that, that share that same passion and, and just get it straight away early on. 
Yes. Okay. Because this is this idea, right? That, and it's funny because we did a um, a live event with Andrew Banks last year, and what he said was, "This idea that you recruit on attitude, not aptitude, is bullshit." He's like, "That's nonsense. Recruiting somebody just because they're a nice person and they're willing to work hard, but they don't have any talent, skill, or experience in the field will be the number one most detrimental thing you'll ever do in your business." And yeah, I look up. Yeah, what I was going to say, Jack, is I, I think I agree with that, you know, to a point. It depends on the role. You know, there, there are certain roles where, you know, I think as a, as a community, you know, we do have to focus on getting people that maybe don't have the most experience in our business because we have to do our part in helping people develop themselves and get experience um, and, and also have a balance in our company of, of, of experts and, and juniors, I guess. Um, but in, in the case of expanding internationally, you're very brave to not get someone with a lot of experience and a, and a big network out there. Yeah, at least have somebody at the epicenter of that team with whom you can build the rest of the individuals around. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I understand that for sure. And you, you mentioned, um, obviously, with Wildflower, you spotted an opportunity in the market to be able to pivot the production of the product because then it would create immediate cash flow that really would be used to ultimately formalize the launch of the gin business. Um, that's one way to do it, right? Uh, there's lots of ways to get a business started. Use your savings, borrow money from a bank, raise capital from an investor, um, go into business partnerships. But you've obviously mentioned one way there, which was using an opportunity in the market and an existing demand, because I believe, and it's obviously a biased perspective from a sales trainer, but I believe the number one way to raise capital is to sell your product. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you guys went through a more traditional capital raising phase in March of 2019 for Ivy, quite, quite a sizable, um, quite a comprehensive capital raise under your series a um this is something i haven't touched on since episode one with vu tran so i'd love to just get your two cents worth on this one for those that are out there right now that have got an amazing business a great idea there is demand for their product but they just don't have the capital to scale it at speed how would you go about recommending them if they were going to approach traditional vcs um, how, what sort of advice would you give them in their method of approach and or their pitch decks presentations, you know, the equity offering that they make? Yeah. So look, I think firstly, my, my initial suggestion would be as long as you can early on bootstrap the business until you get a model that's working. Mm -hmm. um, because if you start raising money too early, you're going to be giving away too much equity because there isn't anything really tangible there. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. However, um, you know, it does make sense in the case of, of, of businesses, particularly in our case, like tech, where our goal is a land grab. We want to get as many venues onto our system as quickly as possible so that we don't get uh, eaten by the big guys at some points in the future. Um, so it's, it's a, it's definitely a strong strategy in that place. However, raising money is hard. It's, it's almost a full-time role for an individual in the business. So it, it does mean that someone has to be uh, focused on something entirely else. You know, we were lucky in our case because, um, in the case of Ivy, um, there's myself and Lauren as the two founders. Um, so I was able to focus 
focus on the operations of the business while, while she went out and, uh, and you know, spoke to in the order of, of probably, I'd imagine, hundreds of potential investors to, to find the ones that uh, wanted to get involved. Um, in the initial days of um, Ivy, going after a VC was too hard because of the nature of what VCs look at and also because of the nature of here in Australia, they've got a lot of choice. They don't have a lot of competition in, in terms of other VCs looking to get involved. So they can be really picky about um, what they do. Um, so uh, we went after private high net worths, so individuals that were passionate about our idea, um, and uh, and they were initially the ones that got us going. Um, there becomes a point where you're just not going to get the same amount of of you know investment from private high net worths, uh, and also you don't want to have too many shareholders uh, involved in the company because you know within that it can have its own challenges. So mm-hmm. at one point it does make sense to get uh, sort of a bigger entity involved, um, and there are lots of choices I guess and options in that space. Um, my suggestion is that um, you know. It's it's important to speak to a lot and to get their feedback about what they're looking for. Um, you know, treat it like an opportunity each time you do a pitch to actually learn, um, because you'll do that many that by the time you start versus the time you finish doing your pitches, um, you'll probably have changed your pitch entirely. Um, so so use it as an opportunity to learn rather than feeling despondent because the first ten that you've spoken to you know haven't come on board. I mean we've got a really incredible success story here in Australia at the moment called uh, Canva. And, um, you know, I remember the story of the founder there where she'd, uh, you know, spoken to probably hundreds, you know, the same as us of potential investors before they got going. And, you know, now they're worth $6 billion. So you've got to have a lot of tenacity and uh, you've got to learn and be prepared to change and adapt um, to to move towards what they're wanting to hear once, once I guess you understand what that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I love the fact that you you are stating openly because many people, I think, wrongly in the business uh, world, try to purport that it's been very simple for them, very easy for. Oh no, my business has gone great. I had customers since day one. Raising money was easy, but let's let's be real about it. Ninety five percent of people would not have had that experience. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's probably closer to ninety nine percent of people. Business raising money, all of it is hard. You know, if if, if you don't have a, a lot of guts and the ability to to take you know hundreds of no's, then it's it's the wrong thing for you to be to be frank. Yeah, no, I agree. And and then when you you look at say the Starbucks story, right? And I love, I love reading fifty seven times denied application. You know, things like the KFC story. Um, so many denied applications for funding to start the very first store, but. The difference between the household names and brands that we are aware of and understand today and the ones that never quite made it to that position is often, for me, revolving around the tenacity, as you said, of the individual um, with whom was representing that business in going through the capital raise. So I think, let's pick on Lauren, not pick on Lauren, but pick up the subject of Lauren for a short second because obviously you have a business partner with whom is incredibly talented, incredibly experienced, very passionate, um, and would naturally have her own way of thinking. Now, I'm also in a business partnership. Myself and and Ryan often openly state the fact we are extremely different characters. That has benefits in some circumstances, but often it can leave us at a stalemate around certain decisions because we actually just completely disagree with what we think is the best course of action. Talk me through the pros and cons, not not of Lauren as a human being, but of 
being in partnership in business. What parts of that are great and what parts of that actually at times can hinder? Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, anyone that knows the two of us would, would agree that Lauren and I are probably <laughs> two of the most different sort of people uh, that can really exist. And to be frank, that's a good thing. Um, you know, if, if we got along and agreed on every decision, uh, we would probably not have a very successful business. Um, you need people to challenge your ideas and to, and to, I guess, hear different points of view to, to be able to make great decisions. You know, in saying that sometimes, you know, you do get heads butting and what's really helped us is, uh, making it clear what our roles and responsibilities are in the business and, and who gets the say in each of the areas. You know, so in the, the case of, of Ivy, you know, I'm responsible for the operations and, uh, and Lauren's responsible for the, the budgeting, the finance, you know, those sort of bits and pieces. And, um, you know, whilst we will talk to each other and discuss those things, you know, we, we, we tend to, I guess, have a respect for each other that, that they're the areas that we trust each other will do a good job on and, and to get on with it. Yeah, no, I love that. And that, that was probably a mistake that w I had made in my business partnership for nearly the first four years was not clearly defining scope. Mm -hmm. And instead, we, we brought in consultants that had come from KM&T in the UK, um, came in and sat with us and did an exercise of RACI. So uh, put four letters in the top of the Excel spreadsheet, responsible, accountable, consulting form. We wrote down every single task that we could think of within our business and said, who's responsible for it? Who's accountable for keeping that person responsible? Who does that person need to consult before they take the action? And who or what do they need to inform after they've taken the action? And suddenly we found, wow, we're not blurring the lines anymore this point, Ryan's going to make a decision. And whether I agree with it or not, I wholeheartedly support him because it falls inside his scope. Um, exactly. Exactly. Look, at the end of the day, it, it's, uh, you know, a partnership is just like a marriage. Uh, you are in partnership, you have to respect each other and their roles. And, uh, and you're right, even if you don't necessarily agree with that decision, you've made the decision early on who's making the decision in each area. Yes. And uh, you need to stick with it. And just stick with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I love what you'd said about your capital raising, which was, Two, two things I've taken from it um, that you'd said about business really in its entirety is roll with the punches. Take every challenge as it comes in an isolated fashion. And almost it's great to have the three, the five and the seven year plan. But every seven year plan that I've ever met of, a, of an entrepreneur has changed seven times before they get to the seventh year. <laughs> it's almost like over planning can also be detrimental because it reduces your ability to be sort of nimble and, and pivot where necessary, right? But um, I also think that what I said, you said there is be prepared. And that's why I would recommend, and a big shout out to Jason Atkins at Cake Equity. Jason's an amazing guy. And I think his business has been built for anybody who maybe isn't abundantly knowledgeable in, in the financial services space or in the capital raising space to really give you a blueprint with which to go forth to high net wealth or venture capitalists or even banks and traditional um, finance providers um, and be able to go there with a really good business case. But I'd like to, to double down on another thing that you'd said, which is last year I was fortunate enough to play some golf with a guy called Ben Eichen, who's quite a well-known rugby league player, prem premiership winner with Brisbane. And I asked him about why do teams such as, say, the St. George Dragons or the Canberra Raiders, as a couple of examples, why do they always have such a red-hot start to the season, but then somewhere around sort of between Easter and, and, and maybe June, 
you start to see them taper off and eventually they're lucky if they actually even make it into the top eight to play in the playoffs. And I asked him, why, why in his opinion is that? And he said, the reason that happens is because they start every year with the intention of winning the premiership. And I was like, okay, that doesn't quite make sense to me. So because they intend to win, that's why they don't win. He said, yes, in essence, because they intend to win the league, the second that they are not winning the league or are mathematically unable to win the league, they no longer have a purpose. Whereas the likes of a Craig Bellamy, as example, at Melbourne Storm, who have arguably the best rugby league team of the last 10 years, why are they so successful? Because Craig will never, ever, ever allow them to discuss the team that they are playing in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. He never lets them know their, the, the schedule, the fixtures. It's never announced anywhere. It's never advertised anywhere internally. All we know is we are playing one team next week, Saturday at 3 o'clock. So by forcing them to win the league one game at a time, ultimately is what has led to their success. Um, do you see the relativity to that in scale-up business? Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big believer that you really can't plan like, you know, I guess we were taught early on because uh, there are always things you don't expect and you has to, have to pivot and adjust. I, I feel like that's part of the game of what we're doing is constantly pivoting and adjusting based on what we're learning. You know, I mean, even in the distillery, it's, it's only been going for two months and I had a view that we were making beautiful spirits that we would sell and whatever. And uh, we're two months in and we've decided that we're getting into RTDs because um, there's a huge opportunity there that we've been able to sort of find out as we're getting down it. So, so absolutely. I think, you know, that's, that's also part of business is, is you've got to be prepared to change all the time, you know, within software development. Um, you know, there's a, there's a good example of this, I guess, in that in olden days, we used to take a waterfall approach to, to project management in that you would have a big project and you would have steps and you would manage it all the way to the end. Whereas now, as nowadays in software development, uh, there's an entirely different different methodology that we use and it's called agile. And the, the idea is, is that we only really plan two weeks uh, in advance. We say within two weeks, what is our goal to get out? Because there are so many changes that we need to do um, um, or that we get feedback on, whatever it might be, that we can constantly be iterating and changing. It also allows us to every two weeks, look at ourselves and say, what did we learn? What worked? What didn't work? What can we do better next time? And that sort of process of ongoing improvement is I think what makes it successful rather than a big project, you get six months in or a year in, and then you find out that what you've done isn't even what people want. No. I mean, I, I, I launched my whole business around that. I, for the first time, the first two businesses I started and sold, I started with a credit card and no cash. And when you have no money, it's amazing how far you can make money spread, right? When you just don't have it, you just don't have it. And, and you have to make cost-effective time efficient decisions because it's the only option available, right? Whereas when I started ISR with Ryan, I was sat with, you know, you know, a significant amount of cash on account. I'd successfully sold my last business. I'd owned my own home outright, you know, these types of things that meant I then went and dumped five times the amount on a website. I spent four months in strategic planning and preparation. By the time I eventually launched the business to the market, which was a recruitment agency, within about 11 weeks, the market had told me that not only did they not want that product, they actually wanted the polar opposite to what I'd created. And you start to question, why didn't I actually take this prototype to the market first? Why didn't I ask the customer what they wanted instead of 
you know, naively um, and egotistically assuming what the market wanted, you know? So yeah, I completely agree um, with what you're saying there. And when you talk about things like agile and lean Sigma and the continuous cycle of improvement, just doing your plan, do check standardize, even if that's once every 30 days can be such a powerful exercise, right? Whether you're in startup scale up or you're even a, you know, a, uh, somebody that's in just a consistent, what feels somewhat mundane and repetitive operation, taking the time at least every 30 days and using as much of a non-biased opportunity as possible to look subjectively and objectively at your business is definitely something I think we can be guilty of not doing often enough. We're Absolutely. too arse up busy working in and never creating that time to work on the operation. Absolutely. I think the other point to add to that is I, I find a lot of uh, you know people starting businesses have this expectation in their mind that they're going to launch when it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is, is that it's never going to be perfect. Uh, they just need to launch. Mm-hmm. They need to just get on with it, make mistakes, you know, iterate quickly. And that will end up being a, you know, a much better business than one where you're trying to achieve perfection before you get started. Sure. I think that's probably the, the absolute nugget of gold for you guys to take away here is, is James is really, really encouraging you to seek progression, not perfection. Perfection doesn't exist. You know, even Toyota, in my opinion, probably the best manufacturer or production system in the world. They still work to three or four parts defect in a million. Nobody is perfect. And I think the longer that you sit waiting for perfect, often by the time your perfect product or service is ready, the industry's moved on. And there's actually no longer a, a demand for that specific format with which you intended to deliver it. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, no, no perfection, just just progression and fail fast, fail forward. And and as long as as that is ultimately, um, you're not making the same mistake twice. Then really, you're you're just being granted fantastic lessons. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. So you're <laughs> we're running three businesses. We um. We are in four different continents. We are in the middle of a global pandemic and you're still trying to be the best husband, best father you can possibly be. I guess it's the age old question in the game of entrepreneurship, but what does balance look like to James Gregg? Uh, look, it's, it's definitely always a challenge. Um, the one thing that I do have, I think is a skill and, and, I think I'm just lucky because of it is that I've, I've got the ability to switch on and switch off. You know, I'm, I'm on a task or I'm not on a task. I don't seem to dwell on things too much, you know, and that's not necessarily an easy thing for most people to do. You know, they'll, they'll sit and think about that sale or, you know, that, that challenge that they've got with an employee or whatever it might be. Um, whereas I tend to be able to compartmentalize, deal with it, move on rather than get stuck on it. So, you know, when I'm, I'm with the kids, I'm, uh, I'm with the kids when, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with something at work. I'm, I'm fully in, engaged in that. Um, you know, people do sometimes have a challenge with that because I can't do more than one thing at a time as a result. Um, but when I do those things, I, I, I try and do them really well and then not let them get dragged over from, you know, one area to the next. Yes. Okay. And in terms of myself, I can only revert back to myself, guys. I um, am a little bit younger than, than James. I've got probably half the amount of business ownership experience that he does, myself being more like about 11 or 12 years with James at 19. But I can certainly hold my hands up and say in the early part of my business journey, I was very guilty of saying yes too much. 
can you do this? Can you help me with this? Do you guys offer the service of? And I lived by this philosophy that I was just never going to say no. If somebody said to me, are you able to? I was going to say yes. And then I was going to figure it out. And eventually I found that I had like 27 products or so. <laughs> we scaled that back to having two and our business grew by 300%. So thoughts on, on that? Are you having- oh, 100%, 100%. I, I get caught in that same trap and I, and I had have been for, for many years of, of trying to please people. Um, and, and I think that's part of my nature as well. I, I do think I'm a bit of a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. However, it's, it's been a skill that I've had to learn to be able to say no. Uh, and you're right, being, being able to say no is better for everyone. It's better for the customer that's asking you to do something that's different to what you normally do because you're probably not going to do the best job. It's better for the other customers who actually want what you're focused on. Uh, and it's better for you because you don't have a million balls in the air that you're trying to always balance, you know, for, I guess, even your own mental health. So, um, you know, whilst it may seem really hard and, you know, if you want to, I guess, please people or, or do it, it, it's it's definitely something as a skill that you need to try and learn to, to be able to, to, to say, you know, is this actually where we're heading and, and adding value? And it, it's a balance. I mean, part of people asking you for things is also, you know, them saying, hey, can you solve this problem for me? And you become aware of the problems, but you also need to decide what problems you're solving and which ones are going to be, you know, as a, a capitalist, the most valuable for you to solve. Sure. And, and it was it was in a, a training session um, when we very first got investment ourselves at ISR Training from uh, Glenn Richards said to us, if we keep trying to be everything to everyone, we will eventually become nothing to anyone. Mm. And that really resonated with me. He said, Jack, if we keep trying to be everything to everyone, we will become nothing to anyone. He said, what are you? What are you best at? And what does this company make the most money from? And I said, we're sales trainers. He said, then let's just be that. Let's just be that. Let's be known for something. Yeah, exactly. Because the specialists are always going to win. You know, if you're if you're looking to do anything in your life, whether it's uh, um, you know purchase a car or whatever it might be, you're after the one that's the best. You don't yeah. want the generalist. You want the best one, the yeah. best thing. You know, and and being the best means that you will, you know, generate be able to generate a lot more revenue from that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. And and then also, it doesn't always have to mean that that's the default of where your profit comes from. You know, like. Go to the most obvious example, everybody sees McDonald's as a fast food business, yet food doesn't even represent a double-digit portion of their overall profit. You know, McDonald's, yes, is a real estate business first. Everybody knows that. But actually, from a product perspective, they're a coffee company. McDonald's is the largest seller and distributor of takeaway coffee in the entire world. That's where the majority of their profit comes from. But you just don't immediately associate them as a coffee business. Um, so I think identity in the market, being known for something, being the front runner or the specialist in something is better than being somebody who can do a bit of everything instead. So last couple of questions from me. I did misquote at the start of this. I, told, I said that James was the trailblazer of the year in 2017. It was actually in 2016. Um, what did that do for you? What did that do for your business, um, James, actually winning that award? Um, look, I think the one of the things it does for you as an individual is is you know give you the feeling that there are some things in your life that you're doing right because as a business owner, uh, you you are lonely from that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very hard for someone to pat you on the back and say 
you've done an okay job or you've done a good job. You know, we're, we're doing it for our employees and, you know, whatever else, might, but no one's doing it for you. So, so that in itself is fantastic just to be recognized and then to be recognized amongst your peers, you know, the, the people that are also working as hard as you are is, is brilliant. Um, and then as a result, you know, just working with, with Business News Australia has, has been brilliant for that because we've been able to then continue to meet more people that, that sit in that category. You know, you know, being a business owner is lonely. And, uh, and by, by meeting other people that think like you and, and want to achieve the same things in their lives, um, and I, I think that's much better because you start to develop a great network of people where you can ask questions and you know, continue to learn from them and their experiences rather than being stuck by yourself you know, in, an, in an echo chamber trying to wonder if, uh, if, if what you're doing is okay. Yes, no, absolutely. No, that's fantastic. No, um, I would... I can't wait to the day um, that I get to actually present you the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Um, what do you think for many people who listen to this podcast are from the awards community, the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards community with Business News Australia? Um, we're all ultimately working every day to put ourselves in the type of position like the individuals with whom take out that award each year. Um, what do you feel you need to do or for, for that to become your reality? Like what, um, what milestones are there left, left or boxes to tick until you believe you would be undeniably the individual that would need to be awarded that? Yeah, look, I, I think um, for us, particularly with Ivy, it's going to be nailing some of these, these international regions. You know, Australia is tiny in the scheme of things and, and we've done very, very well here. Um, but being able to to replicate and do that around the world where the opportunity is so much larger, I think is is where it's at. You know, the the industry that we're in is significant and you know, we have an incredible product and the opportunity to really take it. It's about executing now and and continuing to really focus on on doing that well. And I think we can. Um, you know, I think COVID has has made that possibly a little bit more challenging for us, but I know that we're a strong company, we're gonna get out the other side and and we're gonna use this to our advantage you know one of the things that we have that the others don't is that we're competing against a, a monopoly where you know the, the alternative product is a lot more expensive than ours so we're going to get sales just as a result of the fact that our um our customers uh, are going to be looking for ways to save money and then also to to do things that the alternative company doesn't do you know in terms of automating their business and and being able to be more lean themselves so um you know i'm excited really about what the next um you know couple of years has in store for us even though right now is a, a really challenging time you know the distillery for me is is a good way to um to also i guess distract myself and and give myself something to think about in addition to that it's it's also fun getting into an area i've never been in of, of creating something tangible you know all of the things i've created in the past have existed out there in the cloud somewhere whereas now it's fun to have something that you can touch and feel and and starting to see it in in liquor shops and in bars and stuff is is kind of neat so um yeah i think i think that's probably what the next sort of couple of years is going to be focusing on and um and yeah Amazing. So for final two questions then in just 15 to 30 seconds, for those that are gin drinkers, they enjoy themselves a, a gin and tonic. Um, just talk to me about how your gin will compare to those that they may, you know, a, a, a Gordon's that they may be typically drinking Look, uh, you know, gin started out with a lot of people describing it as the sort of drink that would make them, you know, be emotional and cry. And, you know, our drink is definitely far away from that. Um, you know, we, I've had a, a sort of 50 litre still that we've 
we've now put 76 iterations of our product through. And uh, the secret of uh, our journey, I believe, is uh, just combining a, a, another hobby that I actually have in it. Um, I'm also a hobby beekeeper. It's uh, another thing that I, I, I do on my weekends. And, and we've put a bit of the honey from my backyard into the gin that we produce. And that's why we call it wildflower. You know, the idea being that, that everyone has, at least in, in Burley here on the Gold Coast, has in some way contributed with their backyards to the gin that we're making. And as a result, it is a really floral, smooth gin. You know, we're, we're super um, focused on quality and making something that's, that's easy to drink. Um, we, we dial back the juniper as well. So it's the sort of drink where if you haven't drunk gin in the past, you can drink it on ice without anything else and it just be a really nice drink. So if you haven't drunk gin or not a gin drinker, don't let that perturb you. You know, try it out because uh, um, I think you'll be really surprised about what small distilleries like ourselves are doing in the space at the moment. Where can we go to purchase some money? So the best place is to go to wildflowergin.com, you know, jump on our website, help support, uh, you know, us employing a few local people and, uh, and then, yeah, we'll ship it out to you and, uh, and then leave us a review. We're, we're getting so much positive feedback online. It's, uh, it's you know, really encouraging, um, you know, especially in these early days. That's awesome. That's amazing. So I've got uh, one final question out of my own interest then. So we are in an ever-evolving landscape um, in terms of technology. You are somebody that, as you've, you've experienced in my business, whether I want to do a text message blast campaign or I want to do event management and hosting, um, if I'm not 100% sure on something with tech, I give James Gregg a call. So um, with somebody that probably has far more knowledge than your average Joe, being the convenient generation that we are with all things augmented reality and AI and robotics and cryptos and things of this nature, what do you think is the technology of the future? That if I was speaking to James Gregg on the 26th of June, 2025, will become the staple of our day-to-day -day living the same way an Uber or an Uber Eats has done over the last five years. Look, if, I think if I knew the answer to that, I would probably be a <laughs> billionaire. But what I will say is that I really believe where things are going relates back to the beginning of our conversation, which is specialists. I think that we're moving towards a model where we choose the system that is designed just to solve that problem. So a good example is there are a million CRMs in the marketplace. And effectively, that's what we create. We create a CRM, but for venues. But the reason we're successful is it's because it's only for venues. Yes. We solve just problems that venues have, and that's why we're we're growing so quickly. We're not a, a generalist product, and I think in every industry there's there's opportunities to be the best at that particular component. And if you can find where those problems are, or where people are still using generalist solutions, that's where um, I think there's opportunity. Amazing, yeah. Could couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. We're at a time now, more than ever, where it's about depth in the market, not breadth. It's not about how much of the market you can cover. Um, and don't be a mile wide and an inch deep. Instead, be a mile deep and just one inch wide. Be the most recognized, known, highest quality, most cost-effective and time-efficient option in whatever area of the market you choose to apply yourself. Um, 
Mr. Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for always sharing some realness and some insights to people who are going through what is always a tough journey, starting or scaling up a business. And I, I mean it wholeheartedly. I, uh, I pray and hope that over the next year or two, I'll be stood there congratulating you for being Australia's Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and not only for the amazing technology that you and your company develop, but also for having what will inevitably be um, one of the most highly sought after alcohol products in this country as well. No, good on you. I've enjoyed chatting. Thanks. Thank you so much, James. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, buddy. No. You take care. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.